Good morning, church. Good morning. Um, I know a few weeks ago I shared my, my heart with you, my dreams, my aspirations, and one of them was that I was really dreaming that the 49ers would go to the Super Bowl, um, and they lost last week, and I received a couple of text messages and emails of condolences and, and, and prayers and support and encouragement, so I just wanted to stop and say thank you um, for that. I am doing just fine. I'm, I'm doing just fine. <laughs> In case you were worried, I'm, I'm doing just fine. It's a real, real joy uh, to be with you here this morning. Um, last week, we, we started a, a series discussing what we're calling our rhythms of discipleship, and we're going to be uh, continuing that um, over the next few weeks. Um, and as we, as we get into that, I want to recap a little bit as what we talked about last week when we launched um, our rhythms of discipleship, and we'll specifically be talking about these words, rhythms and uh, discipleship. It's, we frame it this way in thinking about the fact that Jesus is teaching us his ways. Um, he is our source of life, and he's our example of living. And it's meant to be that as uh, followers of Jesus, we are, we are finding that his ways are forever becoming our ways. And it's happening constantly in a more deeper and profound uh, kind of a way. And so we, we've framed um, discipleship in terms of rhythms because we, we don't see them necessarily as places that we will arrive. <laughs> we, we don't see that these are our, our targets and one day we will be able to say, yes, check, I accomplished uh, that targeted discipleship. But what we find is that there is this constant rotation and revolvement that's happening when we, when we talk about discipleship. Um, we also talked about the fact that that I used the example of my first car. Um, I, my older brother passed along to me uh, his, the car that he completely decked out. And in the back of that car was in the trunk. Remember, if, if for those of you here last week, it had 15-inch subwoofer in, in, the, in, the, in the trunk. And there was a 12-point equalizer that was there on, on the dashboard. I had no idea what to do with that equalizer, but I had to learn and to discover what it was to put the different points of, of the sound that was coming out of these powerful speakers in balance. And so when we talk about rhythms of discipleship, you'll hear them in a moment, what our six rhythms are that we're gonna be targeting and focusing. What we realize is that for some of us, we might have a natural inclination to some of the ways of Jesus. There may be the, some ways of Jesus that we just naturally like, just say yes and amen to, but there might be other aspects of who Jesus is that we need to tune into with a little bit more delicacy and finesse and effort in our lives. Um, and, and so when we think about these rhythms of discipleship is that we're constantly trying to say, how do we have at different seasons of our life have different points of emphasis and understanding and, and, and tuning into and paying attention to in our lives. And so, again, these, these discipleships, these lessons, these ways of Jesus, we're keeping in rotation and revolvement around our lives. Um, the other thing that we talk about in terms of this word discipleship is, is that we, we talk about the fact that this word discipleship is a word spoken to the whole church. 
that it isn't this calling that Jesus has that says that some of you will be considered disciples, but the understanding is, is that discipleship is meant to be something for all followers of Jesus. And so when we, when we envision these six rhythms of discipleship, the, the, the passion and the desire really is, is, that, is that these rhythms would be something that would be able to be an entry point for people, but they would also be rhythms of discipleship that for people that have, as Jonathan used the phrase earlier, that are well advanced in, in years, um, would, would also be able to engage in these rhythms and continue to have these patterns of following Jesus continue to be a part of their lives. So what are the rhythms of discipleship that we um, are going to be pursuing over uh, just our community life? They'll come up on the screen and I'll walk through uh, them pretty briefly here and then we'll zero in on the third one um, for the rest of our time together. Our rhythms of discipleship that we, the first two we reflected on last week are with Jesus. One of the movements that we constantly see embodied by Jesus, demonstrated, taught by Jesus, was that word abiding. That what he teaches us is that he abides with the Father. And the way that he abides with the Father, he longs to abide with us. And so the, move, the movement, the rhythm that we, that we hope to continue to learn in our own lives is just to be a people that enjoy the presence of Jesus. That we'd be a people that just learn what it is to just delight in his presence, to know what it is to just be still and know him. And that does take real effort, right? We, we could get more and more into that, but you can also go into last week's sermon and, and hear a little bit more on that reflection. The other, um, one of the other rhythms that we hope to pursue is, is transformation. Constant thing that, that Jesus was, was teaching that that it's not just, it's not about the cleaning of the outside of the cup, but it's about the cleaning of the inside. And what, what he's, he's doing is a, a deeply formed life. That, that's what he's forming into us. And so it is this deep interior change that he's, that he's doing amongst us. And it is out of this new redeemed, transformed heart that then our life flows out of. We'll get more into life together again as the morning goes along, but the idea there is that our life is, is to be together. Um, we think about this is that Jesus is our peace. He's brought us together and he's teaching us to be a new and united people. And so we are we're a community that want connected, committed, and vulnerable relationships. Uh, another rhythm is relentless welcome. And, and the understanding here and what we see again embodied in the way of Jesus is that Jesus was relentless in his pursuit of those that were on the outside. It shocked people the way that he was near and moving toward the Samaritan, the centurion, the notorious sinners, the tax collectors. Um, Jesus is constantly moving towards the people that his people would not have considered their people. And, and that creates a, a, an understanding and expectation of, of the ways that we go out and welcome those who maybe don't act or even believe like us. We see 
um, we also have this desire to be naturally supernatural, that this would be a rhythm that is being formed amongst us. Uh, most significantly, in Luke's gospel account, Jesus is regularly shown as, as operating through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it shapes for us an expectation that the Holy Spirit is empowering us in everyday spaces of our life. From the workplace, to, to our homes, to, to interacting and, and, and just being present with our friends. What we understand is that the Holy Spirit is empowering us to, to live and to be present to the people around us. And then uh, the last rhythm there is missional living. Jesus sought to bring heaven to people, not just get people into heaven. That God's on a mission to bring his will, his kingdom here on earth. And we want to be a people that pursue that same rhythm. So we are a people that are about the, the justice and the redemption and the reconciliation of God being visited here on earth. These are the ways and the movements of apprentices we see highlighted by Jesus. And these are the ways that we want to be pursuing as, as a community. And so uh, let me give you just, uh, again, as, as kind of just a recap, give you a little bit of a highlight of how we've arrived here and why these are the discussions that we're having. And I could just say that it's been over a, a variety of things. We've, um, we've been hosting things like, like listening parties to get together with people in our community and just hear, like, what are the, the passions that God is stirring within you? What are the things that he's doing in your own life? What are the ways in which you have connected with Jesus and have seen spiritual maturity, growth, and development happen in your lives? So it's been conversations like that. It's been observing just the things that, that have sparked joy and, and passion and, and fire within this community already. Like, what are the things that we've just naturally connected with um, as a community? What are the things that we've already been in pursuit of? What are the things that, that we believe God has already instilled in the DNA of who we are? Um, it's been through prayer. It's been through um, conversations with the, the pastoral team. It's been... Uh, Luris and I meeting with, with mentors and coaches and just trying to say, like, what is, trying to, trying to get a, this collective, like, multifaceted picture and understanding of what is God doing and developing amongst us here. And, and we really believe that these rhythms are what God are do is, is doing amongst us, but I would also say, as we talked about last week, discipleship is a learning kind of a word. The posture of, of discipleship is, is humility. It's this place of saying, like, I want to be teachable. And so when we talk about pursuing these rhythms of discipleship, what I would also want to create an expectation for us is that we're going to be discovering these rhythms together. We're going to be pursuing these rhythms together. And so we may actually come to find out as we're pursuing these, these rhythms over the next year and hopefully years ahead that we come to find out, you know what, let's tweak that a little bit. Let's maybe even rephrase that rhythm a little bit. But it is, again, if this discipleship word is spoken to the church, then it will be this collective effort and this collective journey that we will be on together to discover, like, what is God doing 
amongst us. So that's a little bit of a, a recap of what we talk about when, when we're saying rhythms of discipleship. And so I want to get into that, that third rhythm there, uh, life together. When I was 17 uh, years old, I attended church for the first time. I was weirded out. Uh, I, I sat in, in this large youth group. It was a Wednesday night. And, and I had never been in an environment like this before. It's, their worship was playing, and people around me were raising their hands, and they were singing. And I was sitting there in that space thinking, what is going on? right now like where am i and there was a little bit of like what would my mom think if she knew that i was here right now <laughs> it was just i just had like no context whatsoever for for community singing right like i didn't even like grow up with musicals i didn't grow up like going to plays i didn't like and so just something like this was just so foreign and new to me but as I sat there, still even a little bit uneasy about where, where things were going, the pastor got up and he began to preach. And as he was preaching, it was one of those messages, I don't know if you've had these moments before, where it just felt like they knew everything about your life and crafted that message specifically for you. And, and I'm sitting there, and I got invited to youth group by a buddy. His name was Blake. We were on the, the football team together. And, and I'm sitting there looking at him like, you told them that I was coming <laughs> tonight. And I was, I was also the captain of, of the wrestling team for our for our high school uh, wrestling team. And I, I bring that up because as, as this is happening, as this message is playing out, at one point, the pastor just out of nowhere says, look, it's, it's like something's got you, he's saying this to everyone, but it's like he was looking right at me and he's just like, something's got you in a wrestling hold and you're not coming closer to God. And I, at that moment, I looked over at my friend Blake and I was like, I think I literally even told him, you told him I was going to be here. And he laughed at me. He just laughed and said, nah, God got you. And, and then the evening started off with me just like so skeptical and so like, just like, what? I don't know where I'm at. Is this a cult? I'm not sure. What am I doing in here? To... So that night, getting up, going over, walking to the pastor, and, and, and committing to following Jesus. The next day, the next day at football practice, I'm walking on to the practice field, and another friend of mine, Adam Mendoza, he comes up to me. He's the offensive lineman. He's, he's tall, he's big, he's, he's, you've got 
maybe a foot on me. And he walks up to me with this huge grin on his face. And he embraces me. And he lifts me up. And my feet are dangling off of the ground. And the words out of his mouth were, welcome to the family. That, those moments have forever shaped my understanding of following Jesus. That it isn't just this individual call, but there is this collective kind of experience and dynamic that's at play. Where, where when, when Jesus uh, calls us to himself, this new life that we have in him is, you can't, you can't separate it from being called to a new people. Um, at one point, I'm going to read to you from, from Mark chapter 3, looking at, starting at verse 31. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Jesus is, fr- is in front of a crowd, and he's teaching, and then it says this here at verse 31. It says, Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. They stood outside and sent word for him to come out and talk with them. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus, and someone said, Your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. Jesus replied, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he looked at those around him and said, Look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This statement from Jesus would have sent shockwaves through the crowd. Like, like so many cultures and so many uh, people groups throughout human history, family ties are absolutely paramount. They're primary. They are our number one in your life. And to be seen as potentially anti-family would have been absolutely devastating for your reputation. Yet Jesus stands in front of a crowd of whom would have thought and expected that he would have stopped everything to go outside to visit with his mother and his brothers. He doesn't. Yet he says, no, anyone who does the will of God, that's my brother and my sister and my mother. It would have been shocking. It, it would have been like, take your, your, your breath away and just like this, this confusing kind of moment. Mark writes it out for us. They sent, listen, Jesus' mother and his brothers, they sent word for Jesus to come talk with them. Right? Mark is setting up for us. There's this expectation. They show up, they're outside of the room, and they just tell someone, hey, go tell Jesus we're here. 
And, and again, the expectation is that as Jesus is teaching, that person that walked up to Jesus would have came to him and said, hey, your mom and your, your brothers are outside. And he would have said, oh, excuse me, everyone. I've got I've to go talk to them. Can you imagine being that messenger that hears Jesus say, who are my mother and brothers? And that person has to walk back outside and say, uh, he said... Whoever does the will of God are my sister, brothers, and mothers. <laughs> it would have been this awkward kind of a moment to be the one that's relaying that kind of message. It's a wild kind of moment. This is what Ben Weatherington, um, theologian, scholar, says when he observes this passage here in Mark chapter 3. He says, verses 31 through 35 present Jesus's vision for a new community where spiritual kinship and not physical relationship is the fundamental basis for family. This was shocking. This was paradigm shifting. This was worldview altering kind of a moment where he's saying, it's you. Your family. You're my mother and brother and sister. Now, now listen, let me, let me make sure to emphasize this is, this is what it ought not to mean in our lives. This doesn't mean that we abandon our family. It doesn't mean that we mistreat our family. It doesn't mean that we stop loving our family. There have been all kinds of, of just stories of tragedy of people that have, in the sake of pursuing ministry, have, have mistreated and neglected family. One, one of the things that you will absolutely observe when you read through the letters written to the church is that because we are followers of Jesus, we are to be people that are outstanding, selfless, loving husbands, wives, sons, daughters, dads, moms, in-laws. But it's because the kingdom of God has become first in our lives, we are then able to be better husbands and wives, brothers, sisters, sons, daughters. But there is still a shock factor here to Jesus' words. What this does mean is that Jesus sees our relationship to him and our relationship to one another in ways that are absolutely staggering. Your life and my life are bound together in ways that we can barely begin to comprehend. Listen, because of the blood of Jesus, you're my blood now. You're family. And Jesus isn't, it isn't hyperbole. Like, he's, he's saying, like, this is, this is the family of God. This is where kinship resides. 
Jesus understood his disciples to be his family. Amongst him in that group of disciples were his sisters, brothers, and mothers. And Jesus cared for his disciples. What are the rhythms, what are the ways that we see embodied in Jesus when we observe how he cares and loves and is present to his disciples? He provides for them. He prays for them. He forgives them. He's with them in incredibly difficult and scary moments. But what we also see modeled by the way of Jesus is that he opens up his life to the disciples. Like you think about him in the Garden of Gethsemane, and what he tells his disciples is this. In Mark chapter 14, verse 34, he, he comes to his disciples and he says, My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And it's this powerful, this beautiful picture of Jesus opening up his life to the disciples. And he what he's modeling for us is this life together. He, he's... He, he knows his disciples, but he also is known by his disciples. He's not, a, he's, he's not hidden from them, but he regularly expresses to the disciples what he's going through, what he's processing, what his emotions are, what, what, is, what, what the things that he's thinking about, and, 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 and like he's, just, he's showing up, and he's like showing himself to the disciples. He just doesn't know his disciples, but he's known by them. And what I find absolutely intriguing when you read through the pages of, of the gospel narratives is that, yes, you will find that Jesus provides, that he is a good family member, right? What you find is that, that he, he, he prays for them. At one point, he pays for their taxes. I mean, come on, what kind of family member is that? That is so cool. Um, he weeps and he wails at the news of the death of one of his beloved family members, right? Like he, but the other thing that you actually see in, in this dynamic at play and Jesus is doing life together with the disciples is that he regularly receives from them. We're, we're told by, by Luke in his gospel account that there were a group of women that were following Jesus, and they were the ones that provided for his ministry. It was out of their wealth and their resources that, that the disciples were actually able to go out and minister. He receives with thanksgiving the, the offering of a young boy. Um, and, and he, he turns to heaven and breaks that, that bread and, and is so grateful for the gift of that young child. And there's also this other moment where, where a woman comes before Jesus and, and she's so broken but so thankful for him. And as, as she's weeping at his feet, she begins to wipe uh, his feet with her hair and her tears. And he turns to, to the crowd and he communicates that her, this moment is a gift. From her. And what we see modeled there is that Jesus teaches us to give and to receive with grateful hearts, that our lives are this place of just being woven together. 
And so here's our rhythm of discipleship. We are learning what it is to have our lives together. We are a people in Jesus who have committed, connected, and vulnerable relationships. We are learning to simply enjoy each other's presence. We're learning to care for each other in incredibly difficult seasons. We're learning to have emotionally healthy relationships, to work through things like, like forgiveness and conflict and ill health. I, I think about that, and I think about in bon, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's uh, book, Life Together, Appropriate. He writes this. He says, we thank God for what he has done for us. We thank God for giving us brethren who live by his call, by his forgiveness and his promise. We do not complain of what God does not give us. Rather, we thank God for what he does give us daily. And is not what has been given us enough. Brothers who will go on living with us through sin and need under the blessing of his grace. Is the divine gift of Christian fellowship anything less than this? Any day, even the most difficult and distressing day. Even when sin and misunderstanding burden the communal life, is not the sinning brother still a brother with whom I too stand under the word of Christ? Will not his sin be a constant occasion for me to give thanks that both of us may live in the forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ? Thus the very hour of disillusionment with my brother becomes incomparably salutary because it is so thoroughly teaches me that neither of us can live by our own words and deeds, but only by that one word and deed which really binds us together, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. When the morning mists of dreams vanish, then dawns the bright day of Christian fellowship. Bonhoeffer's saying is, listen, what we are is a gift to each other. And what can so often get in the way of us seeing each other as the gift that God has given to us is constantly dreaming of the ways that God could have given us a better gift. Rather than learning to embrace and love the gift that God has placed in our lives. Anyone who does the will of God is your brother and your sister. And, and, and it, it is a work of discipline. It is a work of learning to follow Jesus that we learn what it is to embrace and love and be there with the people that God has placed in our lives. And it is through constantly arriving and loving the people that God has placed in our lives, that this life together will be formed. I think about our life together, and I reflect on quite literally the hardest night 
of my life. Um, when, I mean, it was, it was in the middle of the night, and I got a phone call from my older brother letting me know that my younger brother had just died. And, I mean, in that moment, obviously, obviously, it was devastated. And I tell Larissa, I've, I'm going to go drive to L.A. to be present with my, with my family. And as I'm driving up to L.A., I didn't know, but Larissa sent a text message to some friends and people that I'm in community with. And so as I'm driving up to L.A., my phone rings, and there's Danny Clem's name. And he just says, bro, I have, I have no words. And I just remember like, responding to him, like, you're not supposed to have words. <laughs> we weren't made for moments like this. And then he was just on present. He was just present with me in that moment. And, and when we talk, when we talk about the joy of fellowship, for me that night, that phone call with Danny is the definition of the joy of fellowship. It is, it is this statement that says, I am glad to be with you. I'm glad to be present with you. God is forming amongst us a life together. Discovering discovering that the gift that he gives to us are brothers and sisters. Right? Like there, uh, there are people in our lives that have become brothers and sisters because of our belonging to Jesus. But there's something else here in Jesus' statement that I, that I want to make sure that I bring forward for us. The, the, the observation, again, looking at from Beth, Ben Witherington, is this. He comments, the upshot was that in this moment, Jesus' natural family at this point had no part in Jesus' movement or ministry. So maybe they weren't amongst the group of disciples at this point. And in any case, that family and friends had no special advantages in the dominion which was coming. This concept can only be called radical in a traditional patriarchal culture where blood is seen as thicker than water or any other substance. What's Ben Weatherington getting at here is, is what, he, what Jesus is doing in this moment is, is, is making a statement that's going to have a ripple effect and impact for the body of Christ for, the, for ages to come. 
the, the assumption was Jesus's family would have some kind of special access to Jesus's kingdom, that there would be a special advantage because of how close they were to Jesus. And what I hope to get across in this is, is, is that Jesus is introducing us here in this moment a great flattening or leveling nature of the kingdom of God. It's, it's this. Yes, James, who was Jesus' brother, yes, because James is Jesus' brother, is Jesus' brother, that doesn't give James greater advantage or more access to Jesus than you. And it's an incredibly important moment in the church because it sets the grounds for how the church will understand this family life together paradigm when people from other cultures and nations start to join in. The crowd of primarily Jewish people are hearing Jesus say, anyone, anyone who does God's will is Jesus's family. And the ripple effect that that is meant to have is that the, the, the initial movement of the Christian church will be made of primarily Jewish people. The assumption, like any kind of people, would be that we, we have special access. We have special advantage. Will it be Jesus's tribe? Will it be Jesus's hometown? Will it be Jesus's nation that will be considered family? Yes, but will it only be them? Right, the, 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 the ripple effect is that it creates expectancy for followers of believers of who our hearts will be open to and who we will share life with. Will it be for people just like us? Jesus is creating expectancy here. I begin to follow Jesus within the context of predominantly white church community that has remained my context for community and ministry and I don't I don't say that as a critique or a complaint but I I, I bring that up as a point of celebration because what is done for me it, it has given me this hope and this expectation that the family of God is, is meant to be of a diverse people coming together and knowing what it is to share life together. I was kind of forced into that. Not forced, but I was like, that's where I arrived. That's where, that's where life in Jesus began. As it was like, I looked around the room, and, and more often than not, that when I was in a room, when I first began to follow Jesus, I looked around, 
and most people didn't look like me. But this was the community of God that God, that he placed me in. I remember going to my first men's prayer gathering at the church that I first began to follow Jesus in. I was 18 year old, you know, Hispanic guy coming into this room and looking around the room and the room was filled with predominantly 40 to 70 year old white men. And I just kind of felt out of my element. Just kind of like, oh. Like just a little bit of anxiousness. Like, I'm not sure how to act here in this moment. But I was embraced. I was welcomed. And and it and it, it just solidifies in my heart. Like, like when when Jesus says, like anyone who does the will of God is brother or sister or mother to me. He is creating an expectancy, an understanding for the for the community of believers that those that we consider family isn't meant to just be limited to those that look like us. That we share affinity with. He's creating an expectancy for this crowd. There are going to be people that you currently consider enemy that are going to start following. Anyone who does the will of God, his mother or sister or brother. I am continuing to learn more and more that spiritual maturity needs multi-generational community. that we are to pursue life with people that have been there before or are navigating different life experiences but still trying to stay faithful to Jesus. That it's, that it's this, 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 that's the place in which we grow and understand what it really is to, to, under, to, to embrace and express the love of God. It's, it's when we can do that with people who we would probably not naturally have gravitated toward. But they are the gift that God has given to us. And it's there amongst that people that we learn what it is to have life together. So here's the reality. We'll wrap it up with, with, with a couple of statements here. Each statement should only be about 20 minutes long. <laughs> you may be wonderfully surprised by the people that God knit your life together with. You may come to discover that as people that are not your same age, that are not your same background, that are not your same culture, that he decides this is who I'm going to have be your family. 
And when you learn to love them, man, you will be wonderfully surprised by the joy that resides there. The other thing that I would say is no matter what, it will take a long time, longer than you expect, and it'll take a lot of commitment to see this life together be formed. The common understanding is that that's at least two to three years to actually see this life together type relationship be formed. It takes time. And, and throw in something like a global pandemic that completely disrupts rhythms and connections and that you find, because it's a rhythm of discipleship, that there are going to be these seasons where you have to relearn that. You have to rediscover what it is to have life together. As, as we turn to communion... As we turn to communion, I want to read this little section. Um, it's a great book called A Meal with Jesus by Tim Chester. And he reflects on the communion, the Lord's table, being an act of community. He starts off by quoting 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17. He says, because there is one bread, this is Paul in 1 Corinthians, <laughs> because there is one bread, we who are Many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And this is what Tim says. The Lord's Supper declares that the death of Jesus is not just in the symbolism of bread and wine, but in the community created by the cross. We've seen time and time again how meals create and reinforce community. Christ told us to take bread and wine because they form a meal that bind us together as a community. This is why what's happening in Corinth so offends Paul. The church's communion meal has revealed its division. Indeed, division seems to have been the goal for some in this community. In the culture of their day, it was common for banquets to be occasions for the conspicuous display of social distance and even humiliation of the clients of the rich by the means of the quality and quantity of food provided to different tables. The meal became a place where you could actually see social hierarchy in place, and the church in Corinth was living this way out when they were having their communion table. So the wealthy in Corinth were using the Lord's Supper in this way to highlight their social superiority. But says Paul, this is not the purpose of the Lord's Supper. That kind of meal doesn't proclaim the Lord's death. We proclaim his death by eating together as a reconciled community through the cross. The cross humbles us all as we see the extent of sin and the cross exalts us all as we are all welcomed into God's family. The family that eats together stays together. The understanding of this table is that Jesus 
is our peace. We all come to this table in the same standing. We arrive here because of the grace of Jesus. It is not a table that causes us to have hierarchy. It's not a table that highlights differences. But it's a table that causes us to be aware that we are all recipients of the same shared grace. And it is because of this table, because of the provision of Jesus, that we're able to have life together. Let me read to you what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, and then we'll break bread together. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also handed to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. It's a y'all statement. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took also the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, we'll invite you forward to this table at, at your own pace, at your own, uh, uh, at your own leisure.